That is definitely my story and my song, and I hope it is yours too. Amen. Well, I confess to you that my wife and I are Downton Abbey fans. We're just going to put it out there. and I know that's kind of nerdish, or I don't know what it is, but uh, we were excited about the movie coming out this weekend. And we're not promoting the movie. I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying that we like it. So uh, don't judge me. Don't email me. Don't text me about it. Just, I'm just saying, okay? Um, but, uh, you know, I, I wonder why is it that, um, that, that we like it, and, and I think maybe my wife has her own reasons, but... But one of the things that are really attractive to me is this idea that there's this big mansion, almost a castle, where an extended family lives and, and carries on their life. And then there is this great amount of people, servants and butler and housekeeper and maids and footmen and all kinds of people, cook and assistant to the cook. And all of them, this extended family lives in this one big house and it just sounds exciting. I mean, it's the kind of thing that we, we don't, we're not familiar with in our time and in our country. We live in simpler houses with nuclear families uh, and, uh, and, and TV trays and things like that, right? So it's kind, of, it's kind of exciting to think of a big, big family in one big house and, and how that happens and how they become united and how people grow to care for each other. I mean, you even develop this sort of, uh, you, know, you know, love for the cook. I mean, I don't know. That's not hard for me to do. I, I love cooks. You know, I'm just wherever I go. But uh, today we're talking about being one in him. We've been going through the book of Ephesians and our series called Called and Accountable. And uh, as we've been going through Every portion of the book of Ephesians, we've talked about being chosen in him. We've talked about being eager for him. Last Sunday, we talked about being raised by him. And today, we come to the latter portion of chapter 2, and we're going to talk about being one in him. And we ask ourselves, what does the cross have to do with oneness? Well, let's jump into our text, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. And we're going to read this in three different portions, but here's the first portion uh, for, for us to consider. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I'm reading out of the NIV. You can follow the reading with your ears or on the screen or with whatever version of the Bible you have in front of you or your device. It says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision which is done by the body, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We thank God for his word. And throughout our text today, which goes all the way through verse 22, and we'll read in a moment, what, what jumps out is this idea of oneness. It, it, it's what Christ did in his redemptive work and how it touches on the idea of our oneness as the people of God. So let's talk about that. The first thing that I want to highlight in our passage is that we are one by inclusion in Christ. It's nice to be included, isn't it? It's nice to be invited to things, right? Whether it's a birthday pachanga 
or whether it's just for coffee. It's nice when people invite you. I, 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 we like that. I, I get a lot of invitations. I can't make everything, but I like to be invited. It's nice to, that people think of you. And uh, because you know the other side of it, some of you may know the other side of it. How do you feel when you're left out? How do you feel when, when you're the one on the outside looking in and you go, well, I, you know, or, or you're, you're going through Facebook and I said, oh yeah, they had another party. Thanks for the invite, you know? Uh, and, and they're taking pictures with, with your friends and with other friends that, yeah, thanks for thinking of me. And you're just looking from the outside in, you're, you're, you're the one who's been left out, you're, you're the minority group who has been excluded by the majority group or whatever. It's not a good feeling, isn't it? And, and so uh, Paul reminds his readers that at one time that was them. They were the outsiders. They were excluded from God's plan. They were left out of the privilege of being God's chosen people. See, the original re readers of the letter to the Ephesians were non-Jews. Uh, the, the, the Bible term for that is Gentiles. Uh, there were people who were not Jewish and they had not grown up knowing anything about Israel's God. They hadn't grown up uh, with, with Israel's religion, but now they found themselves in this new thing, this new movement that had recently started by a Jewish rabbi of all people. And, and it started in Jerusalem. And, and so what does that have to do with them? God had made a covenant with Israel uh, that he would be his God, their God, and they would be his people. God provided Israel an identity. He provided Israel with a law that would allow them to live peacefully, to know something about him, to, to reveal himself through the law. And, and then he provided them a sacrificial system, a system where even if they didn't understand it fully, they would know how God feels about sin and, and how God provides for people's sin to be dealt with and, and how people can worship him. And so God gives Moses instructions to build a tabernacle. A tabernacle is, is this tent that they would put in the wilderness as a tent of meeting. It was a place, the central place of worship for the wandering people of God in the desert. And, and the instructions for the tabernacle were very, very, very specific. Every measurement, every fabric, every gold ring, every altar had to meet specific uh, instructions that God had given to Moses because all of it had a meaning. It was pointing to something greater. It was pointing to something bigger. They may not have understood it, but God provided that system for Israel and it was specifically for them and all other nations around them were left out of these insider privileges. And Paul reminds his readers of that. There was a time where you were not citizens, but you were foreigners. There was a time where you were not participants of the covenant and promises of the people of God. Before Christ, there were two groups. There were the Jews and there was everyone else. There were the Jews and the Gentiles. But now, he says, through the blood of Jesus, the two have been made into one. The two have become one. The outsiders have become insiders. The foreigners have become participants. And the imagery that we see behind this is the imagery of the temple. You see, the temple, the tabernacle initially, and then eventually the temple, uh, had a, a specific layout. Right in the middle of the temple, there was a holy of holies. This was a place where 
where no one could go in except the high priest. And he could only go in once a year and he had to be sprinkled with the blood of a bull that had been sacrificed. This was a day of atonement that he could go into the Holy of Holies. It, it, the Jews still celebrate that. It's called Yom Kippur and it's coming up in, in a few weeks. That was the only person, the only time that could go into the Holy of Holies. Then outside of the Holy of Holies was another place called the Holy Place. Now in the Holy Place, other priests could come in, but, but the people, the, the, the common people, if you would, couldn't go in. The priests could go in there and offer incense for the people. And then not only was the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, but around the Holy Place, there was a wall. And this wall divided uh, the Holy Place from the inner court. The inner court was a place where Jews could go and they could participate in the sacrifices. They could, they could be part of the temple worship experience. But only Jews could go in that inner court. And then that inner court has a wall around it that divides the inner court from the outer court, which the outer court is the big part that you can see. And non-Jews could only be in the outer court. If a non-Jew came from another place to worship the God of Israel, they could be on the court of the Gentiles, but they could never go into the inner court where the Jews could go in. So they were four times removed from the presence of God. There was a Gentile court, there was a Jews court, there was a holy place, and there was the, the holy of holies. Can you imagine what that might have felt like to, to be on the outside, to be separated from that? And Paul says, yet in the death of Christ, you remember when Jesus died, remember in the gospels, when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple, that's the curtain that divided the holy of holies from everything else. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain was open. When Jesus died, he said, everyone can have access into God's presence now. Jews and non-Jews. Christ has carried on himself the punishment of everybody's sin so that anybody that trusts him, anybody that puts their faith in him can now have access to the presence of God. If you were far away, now you have been brought near. Now the place where we meet God is not a temple, it's not an altar, it's not the Holy of Holies. The place where we meet God is in Christ. We meet God in Christ. We are one by inclusion in Christ. Now, one of my, one of the uh, preachers that I really admire is Dr. Joel Gregory. And I remember some years ago, we were visiting, talking about a subject, and, and, and he said something that really stuck with me. He said, everybody's a stranger sometime. Everybody's a stranger sometime. We've all been outsiders at one point or another, haven't we? I mean, even the Hebrews were outsiders when they were slaves in Egypt. And the Ephesians were outsiders before Christ, before they knew the gospel, they were outside. Our, our own denominational tradition, Baptist, at one time they were outsiders to the state church in Europe. You know, European immigrants that came to this country, when they first arrived, they, they, were, they were foreigners, they were outsiders. African-Americans, when, when they were uh, subdued to slavery, they, they, they were outsiders. They were excluded from privileges and from freedom. We all have been strangers sometime. We all have been outsiders sometime. But yet, the gospel tells us that in Christ, we are included. In Christ, we are insiders because of the blood that he shed on Calvary. 
And, and, and that ought to make us, if we were outsiders at one point and God has make, made us insiders, that ought to make us people of inclusion. That ought to make us to look at, at outsiders, at the people who are marginalized, at the people who are far away from God, and to want to include them because you know what? The invitation is still open. The second thing that we see in our passage is that we are one by reconciliation through the cross. You know, Nazi Germany went out of its way to exclude Jews. Some, somehow Hitler and, and the Nazis convinced the Germans that all of their problems were, were because of the Jews. And so they, they developed this hatred that led to, to, to excluding them and harassing them and eventually doing the horrible things that, that you know about the Holocaust. And since the Holocaust, there have been many stories of, of Germans and Jews who have somehow, in the midst of this dark period of history, found uh, some kind of peace and reconciliation. I read the story recently of Gottfried Wagner and Abraham Peck. Gottfried Wagner was born in Beru, Germany in 1947. He was the great-grandson of Richard Wagner, who was a composer. He wrote nationalist and anti-Semitic music that inspired Adolf Hitler. Uh, his music was, was one of the instruments used to, to inspire Adolf Hitler. And Abraham Peck, on the other side, was, was born 11 months earlier in a displaced people's camp in Landsberg, Germany, the only child of two Polish Jews who survived the Holocaust. All of their relatives died in death camps, but Abraham's mother and father were married in a ghetto in Poland in 1943, and then he was born later. These two people from, from two different backgrounds, from, from the opposite sides of the stories, grew up and became young adults, and then somehow they came to the United States and they studied and they became scholars, and in 1991, there was a Holocaust conference, and both of them attended it. Abraham Peck attended, and he noticed in the program that Wagner was a speaker, and he said, why would the great-grandson of a Nazi be a speaker at a Holocaust conference? But, but, but he heard him, and, and he learned that, that, that he spoke about the evil that had taken place. He admitted the horrible things that had happened, and, and, and he rejected that kind of thinking and, and was uh, talking about reconciliation after the conference, these two men spoke to each other and they began a conversation that lasted for years. They traveled together to Auschwitz and they wrote a book about uh, the German, uh, in German about the danger of historical amnesia, the danger of forgetting history, especially the history of the Holocaust and, and addressing current cases of genocide today. They've lectured in many parts of the world. There's been reconciliation between these two families that at one time were on the opposite end. See, reconciliation comes at a high price. Reconciliation is not cheap. Hostilities have to be acknowledged. Forgiveness cannot be flippant. You can't say, oh, you know what? That happened in the past. You just need to get over it. That's not how it works. There needs to be an acknowledgement of, of the things that, that are wrong. And there needs to be a heart that suffers with the person who has suffered, who has been oppressed, who, who suffers the consequences of hostility. You know, uh, 
racial hatred is, is powerful and destructive, isn't it? Some people want to wish it away. In 2017, Taylor Dumpson uh, was the first female African-American president of the student body at her university, the university, the American University in Washington. And, and there was a neo-Nazi group, I'm talking about 2017, there was a neo-Nazi group on campus that began to harass her. They, they would hang uh, uh, bananas around campus and they would uh, take these Twitter handles and they would troll her and just harass her. And, and, and she became afraid and, and, uh, and she didn't know what to do because she didn't know if she would be assaulted or, or if she would be harassed at, at some point. And then somehow she found the courage not to give in to the fear, but to confront it and, and to seek help and, and to talk about it. She didn't hate back. She, she, didn't, she didn't return evil with evil, but, but, but she was firm. And, and in all of that process, those guys that cowardly hid behind Twitter handles, calling her ugly things and saying ugly things about her. One of them came forward when they saw her courage and they acknowledged what they had done and they asked for forgiveness and she listened to them and forgave them. Forgave them. The Bible tells us that Christ has accomplished reconciliation for us at the cross. Christ makes oneness possible. We are one by reconciliation through the cross. Look at what Ephesians 2.14 says, as we continue with the reading of our text, it says, for he himself, it's talking about Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them in God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Christ is our peace. Christ has removed the barrier between the races. He has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between people groups that, that, that were separated from each other or maybe even enemies of each other. Listen, racial unity in the church is not a modern cultural trend. It is a design of God and redemption. It, the Bible tells us here that that's what God had in mind. Jesus didn't go to the cross for a Jewish church. <clears throat> Jesus didn't go to the cross for a Gentile church only. Jesus didn't go to the cross for a German church. He didn't go to the cross for an American church. He went to the cross for a church that includes all people of all races, of all nations. The cross has a perfect shape <clears throat> to communicate, excuse me, what Jesus has done for us. The cross has a vertical beam that talks about how Jesus is our peace with God, that he has reconciled a sinful humanity with a holy God. He's restored a relationship between our creator and his creation that had fallen away from him. That's that vertical beam. And then there's a horizontal beam that says, because we have been reconciled with God, we can be reconciled with each other. There's enmity between us. There are division between us. All of our divisions, all of our enmity is a result of our sinful heart. We become divided because we're sinful people. But when we get right with God, then we can get right with one another. 
when we've experienced reconciliation with God through Christ, it is in Christ that we can experience reconciliation with one another. Jesus took all the hostility that, bring, that our sin brings on himself and he tore down the walls of division. At the cross, he removes that. At the cross, we, we contemplate a savior. We contemplate the son of God who is pouring his life out for us in love and compassion. I don't know about you, but that ought to melt away our pride and our pettiness. Is it okay to have cultural identity? Of course it is. That's the way God made us. It's part of the beauty of it. Is it okay to, to have some sense of, of valuing our denominational background? Is it okay to, to have some sense of, of valuing our, our family of origin distinctives? Yes, it's okay, as long as we value everyone else's. What is not okay is to feel superior to others. What's not okay is to hate other groups, to be racist. It's not okay to dismiss people because of the color of their skin or their religious background or, or their age or their ability. Christ died to do away with that. Christ died to remove the wall of hostility. He died to make a new humanity. We are one by reconciliation through the cross. Think about that. All Christ's followers, all Christ's followers are one in Christ. It ought to compel us to love one another. If that's the design of God, then we ought to love one another. Even though we're different, we ought to love one another. And then thirdly, we are one by union with the church. Why did Christ make us one at the church? He did it because he's making for himself one church. Look at verse 19 of Ephesians 2. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Notice that there are various ways in which the scripture here, this passage particularly, there are various ways in which it describes the people of God. Each one of them gives us an angle, an important aspect of what it means to be one church. For example, it says that we are one new humanity, verse 15. Tells us that Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. In the old covenant, God chose one race for his purpose so that, so that that nation, that race, would be a blessing to the other nations and the other races. But in the new covenant, God has formed a new humanity out of many races. John describes this beautiful vision of this new humanity made up of many races and languages when he talks about his vision of heaven in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. <clears throat> this is the vision that John has. Excuse me. <clears throat> it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, 
people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Can you imagine, can you imagine this vision of John, this, this picture that God gives him? Look, this is why I died, so that I could make myself a new humanity made up of all races and all tribes and all languages and all people groups so that at the end of redemptive history, there will be before my throne singing about the salvation that I accomplished for them. Christ came so that all nations could be represented in his church. And then that's the other idea that we see here that, that the church is one new nation. Uh, verse 19 says that we are fellow citizens with God's people. The church, it's God's new nation. Now, Israel had a, had a place in God's redemptive plan and it has had a place in that, but, but God's plan is bigger than one geopolitical nation. His new nation is the church. It's not Germany, it's not the UK, it's not the US, it's not Mexico, it's not India. God's new chosen nation is the church. Our banner is the cross. Our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 19 also tells us that we are one new family. It says we're members of his household. That's the picture of an extended family that's what the church is, is one big extended family. I don't know how many of you have big extended families. How many of you have big family reunions? It's, it's nice uh, to, to watch that for some people. I, uh, it's not the case for my side of the family. Sometimes my wife, when her side of the family has meetings, they say there are going to be three or 400 people there. And that's just the Trevinos. Or that's just such, such and such. That's a big family. And the Bible tells us that we are part of a bigger family, the family of God. Yes, God is the creator of a new humanity. Yes, Jesus is the king of our new nation, but God is also our father. In a tender way, we can go to him and he makes every Christ follower a brother and a sister. We have a lot of brothers and sisters. And then we see here, the fourth image is that we as the church are one new temple. The old temple of Jerusalem was made with huge stones. And in, in the year 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the Jewish temple. And, and in 2000 years, that temple hasn't been rebuilt. But the Bible tells us here that God has built a new temple. But it's a spiritual temple. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone and the foundation of that temple is the apostles and the prophets, the, the word of God revealed to us. And each of us, you and me that have trusted in Christ are a living stone. We're, we're a living stone in a spiritual temple and we're being fitted together. Some of you need a little more chiseling before you can fit, but don't worry, God's working on it. We're still under construction. And there's still some more stones that need to be brought in. There's still some outsiders that need to be included. And the mortar that keeps the stones together is Jesus Christ. In him, we are joined together. 
In him, we are one. Verse 22, again, I'll read it one more time. It says, and in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Listen, the spirit of God does not dwell in cathedrals or temples made by human hands. He dwells in the spiritual living body of Christ, which is made out of people who have been redeemed. It's made out of you and me. The Bible tells us today that God's purpose is to make a new humanity in Christ, a new nation, a new family, a new temple. It's all spiritual. And if that's God's purpose, it ought to be our purpose. It ought to be our highest honor to belong to the church. That, that ought to be the thing that we are, we are most thankful about, that we have been included and that we're part of this cosmic, global plan. I'm, I'm a little concerned that some pastors and churches today have, have lost sight of this big picture and they have a different notion of what the church should be about. There's this concept of Christian nationalism that I hear about. They preach that what God wants is for Christians to use their political power and influence to establish a Christian geopolitical country through government and laws and judges. They think that what God wants is, is, is to, to make Christianity the, the only official religion. Let me tell you, when I read the scripture here, I don't read that Jesus died to make America Christian. Jesus didn't die to make Germany Christian. Jesus didn't die to make Spain Christian. Jesus died to establish a new people called the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for the church, not for a geopolitical nation, whatever it might be. When Jesus came to earth, he, he was walking with his disciples for three years and he taught over and over again about the kingdom of God. What he was trying to do, it was to change their paradigm. Listen, the kingdom of God doesn't work like you think with your political influence. Jesus never suggested to his disciples that what they ought to do is to use their political influence to remove Caesar from power. He never suggested to them that they should take up arms and, and revolt and, and overthrow the pagan government so that they can establish a Jesus government. He never said that to them. He said, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God doesn't work like that. The kingdom of God is spiritual. It works through prayer and it works through love and it, and, and it works through sharing the gospel and it works through making disciples. That's how God operates. That's how God builds. For the first 300 years of the church, the church was not a legal entity and it grew and it prospered throughout the entire known world. You know, for the first 300 years of the church, it grew and expanded not because it had the help of any government, but because it had the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the saddest things that happened to the church was in the year 313, when the Emperor Constantine made Christianity a legal religion. Because once it became legal, then, then pagan temples became cathedrals and it became a religion of the professionals and it became about rituals and, and, and there was corruption, and for hundreds of years, there's been this corruption between governments and religious leaders doing something that was completely different from the spiritual movement that was started by Jesus and that advanced for 300 years. And the Protestant Reformation often 
Some of the leaders thought that what they needed to do was to replace the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic governments in their countries with Protestant governments, and then they persecuted everyone else. But there were some people groups, there were some groups of people of Christ followers who understood that the kingdom of God doesn't operate that way, that you cannot legislate morality, you cannot legislate Christianity, you cannot legislate the Holy Spirit, you cannot put kings and, and queens that, that will make a country Christian, that, that the way you do that is through spiritual means. The, these groups were the Anabaptists and the Mennonites and the Quakers and the Baptists and the Puritans that were persecuted by the so-called Christian church. And they had an idea. They said, why don't we go across the ocean and we go and we establish a nation, not that's gonna be a Protestant nation or a Baptist nation or a Roman Catholic nation, but it'll be a free nation where churches are free to preach the gospel, where churches have the protection to practice their beliefs according to their conscience. And so they came as pilgrims. And those that today insist on, on some kind of Christian nationalism do not understand the gospel and do not remember history they are doomed to make the same mistakes that Constantine and the Protestant magistrates made. But we're reminded today, people, that Jesus went to the cross to establish a new humanity, a new nation, a new family, a new spiritual temple. It is our duty to be good citizens of our country. Yes, it is. But it is even a higher duty to be good citizens of the kingdom of God. It is our privilege to be patriotic and to have cultural identity, but it is our higher responsibility to acknowledge that we're part of something bigger and greater than even that. The scripture reminds us today that those of us who are uh, trusting in Jesus as our Lord and Savior are one. Our highest honor, our highest identity, our highest loyalty is to belong to the church of Jesus Christ from all nations, from all ages. It is not an institution, it's not a cathedral, it's not an organization, it is a living, breathing body of Christ made up of people like you and me. That's what it's all about. That's what Jesus died for. That's what we get to be a part of. That's what we get to participate in. What a high, high privilege it is, isn't it? Let's stand together. Let's bow our heads as we, as we think about this privilege of being one in Christ. I wonder how God has spoken to you today and I just ask you to take a moment to reflect on what God has said to you today and how you need to respond. There are some of you here today who, who feel like outsiders who feel excluded, but today you understand that the invitation is open to you. Today you understand that you can get close to God, not by your merits or your religion, not because of who you, where you came from, but because Jesus died on the cross and opened up the way. And that all he requires is that you trust him, that you receive this gift so today, maybe you need to pray right there where you are and to say, God, I, I want to be part of your family. I want to be part of your people. 
I receive your gift in Jesus of forgiveness and eternal life. And you trust him as your new king. Maybe that's what you need to do right now. Maybe you need to think about how you consider your, your privilege of being part of God's people if you already have trusted Christ. Maybe the way that God has spoken to you today is, is on your attitude towards others. How are you loving outsiders? How are you reaching out to those who are far away from God? Maybe today that's what God is calling you to reconsider and realign. Maybe God is calling you to, to embrace the nations, to pray for people groups and people who don't know the gospel and to love them and serve them. Maybe today the way that God has spoken to you is you've realized that you've spent a lot of passion and energy doing a lot of good things. But the most important thing that you can be a part of is, is to be building the spiritual temple where the spirit dwells. And that may mean allowing God to shape you and mold you. It may be encouraging others, serving with your gifts, loving people, whatever it means that, that you know that, that your biggest passion and your biggest investment is in growing the spiritual body of Christ. There are other things that are important and that we should do. We should vote and we should advocate and we should be involved in social issues. That's our responsibility to be salt and light in the world. But, but our biggest passion ought to be building up the body of Christ. So maybe you need to ask God to do that in your life. Father, we thank you for your word and your reminder. We thank you for the blessings of being born in, in whatever culture or language group or nation we were born in. We thank you for the privilege of living in this country and all the things that, that it brings with it. We're so thankful. And we're even more thankful that we're bigger than, than that, that, you, that we're part of something bigger than that. Your people, an invisible church that covers all races from all times and will spend eternity together with you. Help us to rejoice in that, to value it, and to live right in the midst of it. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to continue to respond to God's word as we sing. Maybe there's a commitment you need to make. You can make it where you are. You can share it with me. I'll be up here. Uh, you, you respond as the Spirit leads you.